Get used to wooden skyscrapers. They are stronger, cleaner and fire resistant. That's one of the headlines I saw in the past years treating about the benefits of timber structures used for very challenging engineering projects. And as most of them do, they give you this hint that the timber is the material of the future because we have solved the flammability problem and all of its other benefits are kind of obvious. These kind of lines annoy me a lot, not, not because they're plain wrong, because in, in some aspects the wood can really outperform steel. It's just this cherry picking of a single metric and building the whole narrative around it feels like building something really not safe and not sustainable, and certainly it's not doing much good for the timber industry. If you want to learn what do we need to do, you probably should start with the landmark paper by Angus Law and Rory Haddon. We need to talk about timber. And I agree with them. We truly need to talk about timber. And we need to talk about it with competent people. And that's the kind of person I got for you today. is a brilliant young structural fire engineer about to be editor of Structural Fire Engineering Handbook by SFPE. Um, he's done his PhD in, in timber and fire, so he's more than competent to talk about this subject today. He's also probably the best um, rugby player among fire engineers and the best fire engineer among rugby players. So yeah, please help me welcome Dr. Danny Hopkin from OFR Consultants. And let's talk about timber with Danny. Welcome to the Fireside Show. My name is Wojciech Wigzinski, and I will be your host. Hello, everybody. Welcome. I'm here today with Dr. Danny Hopkin from OFR Consultants. Hi, Danny. Good morning. Hi, Wojciech. <laughs> great, to, great to have you here. So, uh, Danny... How did you become a fire engineer? I heard that's a good story. <laughs> <laughs> I perhaps oversold the quality of the story, if I'm honest. Um, but as a teenager, my only real interest in the world was uh, chasing a rugby ball around the field. But uh, I grew up about five miles away from, from Silverstone's Circuit in the UK, which is sort of the home of British motorsport. My hometown is actually home to Mercedes GP. Growing up, the engineering thing for me was all about automotive and, and aeronautical. I was quite interested in sort of moving into Formula One. But through the wisdom of, of my dad, he, he suggested, look, uh, you could go and study civil engineering instead because it might give you some kind of studentship because it's not as popular. And so that combined with the interest in rugby led me to, to Loughborough University because I could double up on, on sport and and engineering in one go. So I actually worked my way through a, a civil engineering degree over what was four years um, and, and did absolutely nothing to do with fire. I was completely intent on becoming a sort of uh, run-of-the-mill, if you like, and probably a quite an average structural engineer. <laughs> but my personal tutor was a, a guy called Jamal El-Ramari, and he was one of Ian Burgess and Roger Plank's first PhD students, and, and he worked on what was kind of the early version of the Vulcan finite element software that so many people now use for modeling frames and tensile membrane action and all that good stuff. So he got me to do a, a dissertation. It, it was the effect of, of heating concrete structures. And that sort of led me down the path of uh, you, you can't touch on a topic like that without seeing everything the BRE had done in that space, particularly at, at Cardington. And so I, I kind of last minute, having had some offers to go into structural engineering, applied to BRE just on the off chance they, they might take me in. And they said yes. And not only that, they would they would fund some further research for me. So that's how I ended up doing my PhD, which was on the fire performance of engineered timber. And that PhD was completely a matter of convenience. I wanted to do something on steel and concrete, but we had funding at the time to look at timber from some government research projects that we had. So I sort of opted for the convenient option of being able to research something with a healthy pot of money to burn yeah. lots of different compartments. And so it was a series of 
almost accidental decisions that, that have got me to the point <laughs> of being a fire engineer, which is probably a, a familiar story for many people. Oh, it's, you would not believe how familiar it is. And it also confirms the theory of Keith both that once you enter the fire lab, there is no, uh, no way out. It, exactly, yeah. Once I was at BRE, I was kind of on this path to become a, a fire safety engineer, albeit I've, I've kind of stayed mainly within the arena of structural fire safety which is where I operate today at OFR. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, if you kept the rugby career, you would probably be on a different podcast. I'd probably have, have <laughs> quite serious concussions and would currently, I would be at the point of retiring, if, if not having done so already, looking for another job. But yeah. but yeah, I think ultimately it was a good choice. I know, I'm, I'm very happy that you went into fire performance of timber and, and because of that, I can ask you uh, some very important questions today, like, can jet fuel melt timber beams? <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, I'm, not sure. I'm not sure the, the melting is the problem, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, uh, yeah, let's drop the conspiracy theories. Let's go into <laughs> proper fire engineering. So structural timber, it seems we've went the whole circle as civilization in a way, turning away from wood when during the war it was extremely easy to destroy whole cities by setting them on fire. Yeah. And then some mass conflagrations that devoured whole cities. Uh, a movement towards incombustible materials, modern materials of the time, concrete, uh, and so on. Then the renaissance of concrete in the 50s, steel structures. Modern buildings built as, as extremely complex arrays of glass, concrete, and, and steel. And now uh, all I see is, can we build new skyscraper from timber? Can we go back to this, uh, let's say, old ways? It's not old ways because the timber is now engineered, but it is in a way a full circle. So what's the hype about and why are we ending up in this point now and why it's inevitable? It's only going to increase in the future. Yeah, it's, I think it's for a few different reasons. The complexity of buildings that we're now talking about is substantially different to what we were originally building with solid timber back in that sort of um, pre-war period. I think the obvious motivation is the climate change aspect. We, we have a climate emergency. Everybody appreciates it. It's, it's a massive challenge for humanity. And the built environment is one of the biggest contributors uh, to that, that carbon. And so when you're dealing with a, a steel or a concrete building, what you're actually, you've got a huge amount of embodied carbon in those materials in actually manufacturing them. But with timber, you can tend towards net zero, if not sort of negative carbon values, because trees absorb carbon from the atmosphere as they grow. If you cut them down, you have to plant more, more trees grow, they absorb more carbon. Uh, and you get into this, this nice uh, cycle of, of addressing this sort of ever-increasing amount of carbon in the built environment. So there's the obvious sort of climate-based motivations to build more with timber, and that's what I hear first and foremost as being a driver. Um, but also kind of allied to that, particularly in the UK, we have, we have quite an old building stock, I suppose, and we have the option sometimes of knocking a building down and, and building a new one, or sometimes we can extend those buildings or we can build over the top of stations, uh, train stations and things like that. Uh, and as a, as a quite a lightweight material, adding extra stories to buildings with, with timber is, becomes a really good option for making better use of, of the space you have available to you and not necessarily having to knock buildings down. You can extend them and refurbish them without necessarily putting massive additional forces on, on the foundations that, that you've inherited. Reuse and repurposing buildings along with mm -hmm. the climate aspect is definitely what's driving it. And then you've got the technological advances, which have been huge. When you've got a, a solid piece of wood, you inherit a, a huge amount of imperfections. It, it's, an, it's a natural material. You've got knots, you've got variations in, in how the grain develops, etc. And with engineered products, what you can do is you can kind of take the best, strongest bits of wood, you can glue them or bond them together and you get a far more stable, homogeneous material that that is, is stronger and more predictable in terms of what it does. Uh, and that allows you to, to go to places that, that you couldn't do previously, things like cross-laminated timber, glue lamb, LVL, mm -hmm. all products that allow you to think about building tall buildings out of wood. It wouldn't have been feasible if you were just using solid sections of timber. 
I'm, let's say, large um, advocate for, for the change in the, the climate policies and the way how we consume the resources of the planet. Regarding timber, seriously, I'm not sure if, uh, you know, building the next headquarters of a global megacorporation with timber instead of concrete is the way to save the planet. Probably, like, you know, <laughs> getting rid of the corporations would maybe. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it is a way to to test and promote new technology, which eventually going into mass use could make this uh, major difference in what we consume while building the buildings. But the second thing you mentioned, the lightweightness of it, the ability to adapt the existing buildings, improve their features. It's really interesting because readaptation of the buildings in changing the way they are used, improving them, is much more cost-effective than building a second building next to it to, to fill the same roles. I, I see there's a future in that and this engineered timber products may may really be an answer to the needs, right? Yeah, absolutely. And and you go back to the sort of um, embodied carbon di- discussion. Demolishing a building is not a particularly sustainable way to construct. So you, you effectively have to replace a lot of that material that's sort of already had a huge mm. amount of embodied carbon. So, yeah, you've got some REBA campaigns, Royal Institute of British Architects, that, that are asking people to prioritise refurbishment and reuse over demolition. And if you can extend your building within the constraints of your existing foundations or whatever it might be, using something like mass timber, that's that's obviously preferential to knocking something down. And to, just yeah. to touch on that sort of global corporations point, yes, there, there are a lot of organisations like Google, for example, the, the headquarters in London is, is a hybrid building that's got some CLT in it. But actually, mass timber could make a pretty big difference in in sort of low to medium rise residential buildings where, where actually we have a housing shortage. So we are going to have to build something uh, and potentially using more mass timber in that less sort of glamorous space of buildings is where you'd make a true difference in, in terms of climate impact. Uh, there's also some improvements in the whole technology, how buildings are, r- are built. I mean, the timber comes uh, from a factory. I know that because I'm receiving a mass shipment of CLT next week and uh, I know the logistics behind unpacking 30 tons of wood now, but for a construction yard, that may be actually easier than unpacking 30 tons of concrete and pouring it up upwards. The process seems streamlined, and since a lot of this comes pre-assembled, you get these benefits of factory accuracy in building the elements, right, in crafting. Yeah, that, that's right. So something like CLT is is arriving from an off-site manufacturing facility. It's quite often cut to the the exact dimensions that you specify for your building. If you're dealing with somewhere like London, actually, where sort of blocking the roads with lorries to unload stuff is really problematic, you've got really constrained sites, then fewer deliveries with, with quicker unloading of those trucks is obviously a huge advantage that comes with, with building with timber for sure. Obviously, there are a lot of pros of building building with timber. Mm. Now, the obvious cons is that uh, it burns. That's quite a tricky challenge. Every now and then you see uh, these articles in papers that wood is more fire resistant than steel or, or, or stuff like that, uh, which which I personally hate. But I mean, there there is something that wood burns. That's that's the point. Yeah. And we have to create reasonable future with engineered timber products as uh, material for our buildings. We cannot pretend it does not burn because it burns. We need yeah. to find a way how to manage the risks around it. What's your point on achieving the acceptable risk? What is the path forward to have a reasonable risk estimation and acceptance criteria that will let a person, which is not engineered wood or risk expert, take a, a reasonable decision that, okay, this is fit for my project. And, and that's a, it's a really huge question. I would start by saying we started building buildings that we, we couldn't necessarily evidence the performance of with, with mm. mass timber. We, we kind of ran before we could walk with, with some of the things that exist, very cellularized CLT apartment buildings with lots mm. of exposed surface area are are kind of the perfect storm for, for a fire that's, that's not necessarily going to extinguish it before, before your structure potentially fails. So the, the first challenge, I, I guess, is in understanding 
the, the remit of the common codes and standards that we apply in design. And I think a, a real challenge is the competency of the people designing buildings. So we have codes and standards that in their origin have, have come from non-combustible buildings. They were, they were designed to deliver an adequate level of safety for concrete enclosures, for, for steel frames, for brickwork, for other forms of masonry. And so a lot of concepts we have in building design, things like fire resistance, as you mentioned, are premised on the structure not becoming involved as a source of fuel. The very early mass timber buildings, particularly in the UK, kind of assumed that those rules and, and guidance that apply for structures that don't burn can simply be extrapolated to, to structures where they're contributing as a source of fuel. And, and we know uh, that's absolutely not true. And there's been some great papers that have been written on it. You've got the We Need to Talk About Timber Mm. A lecture by Angus Law and the corresponding paper in, in the structural engineer. So the first challenge has been in educating people in, in understanding when they're applying a, a code or a standard, what they're getting and, and where yep. the scope of that ultimately run, runs its course and where timber fits into that discussion. And that's not been as easy a challenge to address as, as you might think. And, and I think that's for a couple of reasons. Structure and uh, well, fire engineers, to, to start with, to my mind at least, not actually that proficient at dealing with combustion problems. <laughs> so a lot of fire engineering consultants, at least, kind of operate in this little bubble of, I think Angus Law and Graham Spinardi defined it as sort of code speak. There, you, you develop a, an expertise being able to read back what codes and standards are telling you to do. So there was almost like a memorizing and interpretation of a series of rules and regurgitating those back to design teams, which doesn't help you design mass timber buildings. You have to understand the fire dynamics quite well, and you have to have a, definitely a good understanding of the combustion processes, which unfortunately, whilst a lot of fire engineers are initially educated to understand this stuff, industry can quite quickly almost turn them away from it and push them more towards codes and standards and becoming proficient in their applications. So we've almost dumbed down a lot of fire engineers, which has made it problematic to, to design these buildings. And then the other part of it is from a structural engineering perspective, and normally it's very hard to get structural engineers to engage with the topic of, of fire. Okay. If you ask a, a structural engineer to to specify the fire protection to a steel structure, you'll get some quite blank looks at times. The sort of principle of limiting temperatures and fire resistance periods are, are pretty alien to them. But actually, timber is a space that historically structural engineers have, have felt quite comfortable meddling in. And, and I say meddling because they're sort of playing around the edges of, of a lot of the problems. Because what we do historically is we kind of resolve the fire problem in timber structures to one of a charring rate and a time and a bit of multiplication mm -hmm. um, and then ultimately designing what's left as if the char had just eaten away some of your sections. In a way similar to how we would design a steel structure by giving it adequate protection so the interior is safe mm -hmm. from temperature and will yeah. have the load bearing capacity, right? Exactly. So it's, it's, on, or in concrete where you would calculate the depth at which your rebar is to make sure it does not receive a thermal shock that will make it lose its load bearing capacity. So in a way, this simplified the problem with the same approach to all types of structure, because eventually you need to understand what is the depth of your thermal protection, being that external elements, char or mortar or anything else. And then your, let's say, healthy structure that has the capacity. Yeah, you oversize your section. In principle, I guess, it doesn't necessarily always need oversizing, but you make sure there's enough material left at the end after the char has, has eroded some of that section to make sure it can support the loads. And actually, conceptually, a, a lot of structural engineers are, are on board with that and are quite happy to apply those methods that you see in things like Eurocode 5. But the problem with that is, is kind of the charring process and, and the application of the fire resistance period. It masks an awful lot of complicated stuff that's going on. Charring is obviously a, a byproduct of the combustion process, and, and when the structure is burning, that's changing the enclosure fire, and that in turn brings into question the, the very relevance of, of fire resistance periods when you apply them to combustible structures. So we've got sort of structural engineers thinking they have a huge amount of confidence in this space, but actually their kind of knowledge is, is pretty minimal. 
And so I liken it to sort of the, the Dunning-Kruger analogy where it was uh, peak confidence, but also peak ignorance when we're applying mm-hmm. charring rates to timber structures. Uh, and so a, a challenge has been to, to understand when can we apply that really simplistic approach to, to designing timber structures, charring rates and fire resistance periods, and when do we need to do something more clever? And, and really that comes down to what your objectives for your structure are. So we somewhat confusingly, all under the umbrella of fire resistance, we, we contain a myriad of different functions and objectives mm-hmm. that we're trying to achieve. And when we've got tool buildings in particular, where the consequences of failure are huge, what that fire resistance rating is doing is, is it's trying to be a proxy for the structure surviving the full duration of the fire or burnout, as, as the term is commonly used. But in lower consequence buildings, so maybe you're sort of single story, maybe two story buildings, that fire resistance period is, is serving as a proxy of, of giving you enough time, enough time to get out, enough time for the fire and rescue service to instigate some kind of intervention. And so under these fire resistance ratings, you have different objectives, an objective of surviving long enough, an objective of having an adequate likelihood of surviving indefinitely. And it's quite challenging to tease out what type of buildings need to survive burnout and what type of buildings need to survive long enough. And actually, it's where the post-war building studies start to elucidate that problem. And and they give you some different types of buildings that historically, at least, surviving the fire has been an objective. And for some types of buildings, it hasn't been an objective. And what we've done in, in in a project we'll talk about a bit later is set some guidance out that tries to steer people towards um, the kind of evidence they need to generate for their design, depending upon what their underlying objectives are. And that's just dealing within the ambit of life safety and and health and safety. The discussion around resilience and losses and insurability is is almost entirely separate to to that in terms of reinstatement and potential or estimated maximum losses. For me, the whole concept of fire resistance as the proxy of structural fire safety is kind of difficult me as someone who's, who's a deputy chief of a fire laboratory and we do fire resistance testing and we do hundreds of these tests every year. You take a look on how these structures behave in, in fire tests and you immediately realize that there is no equivalency between the results of these tests. And the approach is obviously the standard time temperature curve, and we know where it came from. And if you don't know where it came from, there's a podcast episode about that with John Gales. And you should listen to that to get some background on, on why it's so ridiculous to, to use it today as a proxy of structural fire engineering. But in the end, the assumption that the structure made of combustible material and non-combustible material uh, that they have the same fire resistance is fault because these two structures will lead to a completely different fire. And it's very difficult to quantify them with one set temperature profile. In yeah. fact, uh, when you do that for combustible structures and engineered timber is certainly a, a combustible structure, your exposure is very unrealistic because sometimes the combustion of the specimen itself is sufficient to to create the conditions within the furnace that for example, for a concrete uh, wall, you would have to use burners to create. And this whole fire dynamics within the furnace, I, I feel it is something that was not necessarily thought out when the method was devised. And today, okay, the test is, is passed. You have the same number behind your rating for one and, and another structure. But in consequence, their behavior in the fire will be completely different. And there's a quite a good chance the fire will be completely different because of the material being used. So the problem we are discussing here is certainly not the problem is fire resistance measured as the standardized test outcome. Is the fire resistance of timber structures sufficient to replace steel or concrete or any other material? Because it is. This is not the question. The question is, how the fire environment of a building will change with the, with this change of a material. And, and for me, this change is quite profound because you're completely turning around the fire dynamics in your, in your building with, with this movement, right? Yeah, I think that the question becomes what relevance does fire resistance have for a combustible structure and, and when? But to sort of elaborate on this a bit, there's a couple of things to consider. One is, is the fire resistance period itself, which we go back to Ingberg in 
1928, and I'm sure John Gale spoke about this. Uh, mm -hmm. The original concept of the fire resistance period was this equating, or this very crude equating of energy, this uh, principle of area under the curve, and this this principle that that your fire resistance period would, to some extent, correlate with the the fuel load density in a room. Mm -hmm. And so, to apply a fire resistance period, you have to, in advance of the fire, know what your fire load is. And once that fire load is gone, then you can use the, the fire resistance rating as a proxy for, for surviving the fire. So the timber structures where they're exposed is problematic because once they become involved as a source of fuel, uh, you no longer know what your fire load is because it, it, the structure itself is a contributor. And then you've got the test. The, the, the test ceases to be a very good comparative across materials when mm. the fuel supply, whether it's propane or oil or whatever it might be, becomes a variable depending upon the material that's being tested. And so, as, as you mentioned there, you put a piece of wood in a furnace, it starts burning. That burning is going to change the, the gas temperature in the furnace and the response of the furnace is, is to turn down the fuel supply mm. to achieve the time temperature curve. And so uh, in real terms, what you're, what you're doing is changing the incident heat flux from the, the contents of the room to the structural element as a consequence of turning that burner down. Uh, and so really, you can only say with any great confidence that, that fire resistance is relevant for, for mass timber when you prevent it from contributing as a source of fuel. And that's where this, this term encapsulation starts to emerge of, of this idea that if, if you put enough plasterboard or whatever the, the product might be on the CLT or whatever the timber substrate might be to prevent it from pyrolyzing, then you can be confident that you're working within a space where the, the only fire load driving the fire dynamics is the contents of the room. It's, it's not mm -hmm. the structural elements themselves. From my experience with encapsulated timber structures, in my furnaces, they behave exactly in the same way or very similar how would uh, concrete or, or steel with insulation behave. It's, it's the moment when the structural element becomes the contributor to the fire, when it all changes. You also mentioned it's going to be the same, but there are many outcomes of this compartment fire dynamics. There's a chance that it, even though it, the wood will pyrolyze and add to the fuel, it will not have sufficient oxygen to burn in the room. So in essence, you just add more fuel, you have more fuel-rich mixture, but the amount of energy released within the compartment is the exact same as it was before. But what happens is that you have much bigger fire outside. That's uh, one voice in the discussion. On the other hand, you can have this fuel to increase the size of the fire within the compartment and change the temperatures inside, increase them and accelerate the fire in a way because then the pyrolysis will be quicker, the destruction of the elements will be quicker. So it can also lead into this loop of you know accelerating the fire quite quickly. And on top of that, the wood is, is a very good insulator as well. And uh, one thing that you have with concrete, with gypsum plaster balls, for example, they take a lot of heat out of the fire because of the processes within the materials, because of their bulkness, because of the specific heat that these materials have. You need a lot of energy to heat them up. So they basically take the energy out of the compartment into the structure. With wood, you have the similar effect as with any well-insulating material, that you don't need that much heat to heat up the surface. The heat is very slowly transported to the middle of the element. So in the end, you don't take that much heat off the compartment as you would with the concrete. And uh, this is also something very rarely quantified in the analysis. And the differences can be quite profound in hundreds of degrees. Yeah, I think what you identify there is, is a myriad of things that, mm. that make building with timber far more complicated than just addressing sort of structural stability in, in the event of fire. It, It, it can become and can touch on virtually every facet of, of your fire strategy. You talk about the sort of the global equivalence ratio aspect of, of the problem where you have the external flaming because you've got the excess pyrolysis gases burning outside the opening. If, if you're wanting to build a, a tall building out of timber and you've changed your flame heights and as a result you've changed your heat fluxes to the stories above, that has implications for external fire spread, whether that's to a surrounding property or from story to story fire spread. So you yeah. might have to put some other interventions in place to at least achieve some level of equivalence in the delay you're likely to have in story-to-story -story fire spread, for example. And that's something that's often neglected. I think we've, we've focused an awful lot on the structural part of the problem, 
what we're missing is all the various other fire strategy implications. So the fire spread part that you spoke about, if your ceiling ignites, for example, that's going to change the, the fire spread characteristics in the compartment. And that might have an impact on the occupants who are escaping. And the extent of burning in the compartment could also make for a far more challenging fire for the fire and rescue service to intervene with. And so we might have to think more carefully about the facilities we provide for intervention. When you move towards a combustible framing solution, you have to do a very thorough review across all facets of your fire strategy in terms of the implications and show that you've addressed them robustly. So is what you say, this complexity of the thing, how big the changes are, does that mean that you just cannot put it under the simple compliance of ADB, right? Yeah, in general terms, I think you're right. I think what we've produced, and we, we have a project with the Structural Timber Association, which is funded by the kind of the big three CLT suppliers, KLH, Storenza, yeah. and Binderholz. And an output from that project is to try and help designers early on from a structural perspective, not, not from a full fire strategy perspective, to, to understand what evidence they need to produce as a designer to satisfy everybody that the level of safety they're achieving is, is appropriate in the circumstances. So we, we call this a sort of compliance roadmap. And you go back to the post-war building studies and the origins of ADB. And, and as I said at the beginning, you've got fire resistance as a principle is spanning multiple objectives. So while you're, whilst you're in the domain of fire resistance being a proxy for buying you some time to get out and, mm -hmm. and allow fire brigade intervention... Then there may be fire resistance testing and fire resistance periods isn't a bad starting point for that objective. Obviously, it is going to change the, the fire dynamics and it's not going to be the same for a steel structure versus a concrete structure versus a timber structure in terms of what you're ultimately getting. But what we've shown over the years, and, and Angus Law and Luke Bisbee have got that great paper on the rise and rise of fire resistance, is that generally we've started from the, the point of view of what do we need to achieve or to survive burnout. And all we've really done is just keep ramping the fire resistance up. So in a lot of these numbers and guidance, we have a fair amount of meat on the bone in terms of where that uncertainty can go in terms of the conservatism in those fire resistance periods. I think where it becomes really problematic is where you're dealing with a taller building where your objective is surviving the fire, um, mm -hmm. surviving the full duration of the fire. And, and what that means is if you want to apply approved document B, as you, you reference then you've got to put a huge amount of plasterboard on your structure to prevent it from contributing as a source of fuel. That's the principle that has to underpin applying that fire resistance period. Mm -hmm. If you want to do anything else, if you want to expose your structure, if you want to partially protect it so your plasterboard is potentially only going to survive partway through the fire, what you're accepting is your structure is going to become involved as a source of fuel, you invalidate the fire resistance period in terms of it being a proxy for surviving burnout. And you have to show uh, when all is said and done, when the fire load in the room is consumed, that the structure self-extinguishes or, or undergoes okay. auto-extinction and that what's left in terms of the residual section can support the loads. So the structure is still standing after it, the content has gone and the structure itself has stopped burning. And that's where you'll find some, some great work on auto-extinction by the likes of Alistair Bartlett from the University of Edinburgh, Rick Embley from uh, UQ and, and Carmen Gorska have all been, been working in this space over, over the last sort of five or so years. Surviving of the structure is not that it did not collapse within a certain amount of time. It also means that it can be fixed and used once again after the fire, right? It's well, I mean, f fix and reuse is where you kind of, you move from life safety into resilience mm -hmm. and recoverability. So, I would say purely from a life safety objective, and, and that's not to say it's societally acceptable to have to demolish a building after a fire, but from a life safety purview, it standing up at the end after the fire brigade have intervened is arguably enough to satisfy that very narrow focus of where the regulations currently put their attention. Okay, un understood. Now, coming back to the physics, you mentioned the auto-ignition, and previously you've also mentioned the use of char as, in a way, thermal insulation for the healthy timber inside the, the structural element. Yeah. But now the engineered timber comes into the market and the difference between engineered timber and the natural mass timber is that its structure is much more complex. You have layers which uh, you may lose and uh, lose the, the char insulation with them in the process we call the lamination. 
And I assume for technologies where you use nails or other dowels or something, uh, similar things can happen where you lose chunks of, of, of the structure and then suddenly expose uh, that. Yeah, let's call it glue line integrity failure over delamination. Because I think delamination has this this sort of bad image of huge surface areas peeling from the underside of a slab. And I don't think that's what we're really talking about here. What we're talking about is sort of the char losing its adhesion and ultimately detaching. To my mind, at least, the glue line integrity failure part of the problem is secondary to the fire dynamics part in that you have combustible surface area and that changes the fire dynamics. And what the glue line unpredictability doing is just introducing some complexity into an already complex problem. Okay. I, I think to some extent we're developing a bit of an adhesive obsession or a, almost an adhesive apathy where if we think we can prevent glue line integrity failure, then we've solved the problem. And I don't think that's true. I think even if you avoid that integrity failure, you can still have a bad outcome in terms of your compartment not self-extinguishing. And if you go to something like Carmen Gorska's PhD, you see that she she found in her bench scale experiments a tipping point where over a certain percentage surface area exposed, the, the compartment continued to burn even if, if delamination or glue line integrity failure happened. It's a real challenge in terms of the unpredictability and, and, and what that detachment does because, as you mentioned, a, a key thing in the self-extinction part is, is that kind of energy balance at the pyrolysis front. So you have an external heat flux that's re received at the surface of the wood and you have some losses, some convection and radiative losses at the surface as, as not all of it is absorbed. And then a certain amount of that heat flux makes it through the char layer to the pyrolysis front. And then some of that is absorbed or conducted deeper mm -hmm. into the section. And what we know from these PhDs that I mentioned previously is that there's kind of a critical mass loss rate for that flaming combustion to continue. And what we know is that timber cannot burn without an external heat source. But if you lose the char layer, then what you're losing is a fairly significant term in that energy balance in terms of how much energy is, is absorbed and how much is ultimately making it to the pyrolysis front to continue to produce those combustible gases. So I, I think the importance of the char fall off very much depends on the configuration of your compartment. The energy balance dictates, I, I think, and I think we've proven it in large-scale experiments that people will get to read about hopefully in, mm. in the next few months, that if you limit yourself to a single exposed surface, particularly a ceiling, and you have a glue line integrity failure, you can still have a good outcome in terms of, of the structure, self-extinguishing in terms of flaming combustion. Smoldering is a more complex matter, but in terms of the flaming combustion, you can have self-extinction or auto-extinction after delamination has happened, even with some quite extensive delamination. But you can, if you want to, you, you can remove some of that uncertainty or say remove, you can mitigate some of that uncertainty about the glue line integrity failure by using different types of adhesive. Traditionally, or, or almost exclusively up until fairly recently, has adopted a polyurethane-based adhesive, which mm -hmm. softens at relatively low temperatures. And actually, you can get that detachment of the char layer before the char front has reached the glue line. We're talking sort of anything 150, 200 degrees where, where that glue starts to degrade. So some attention... Um, has gone on to improving the, the, the sort of thermal characteristics of that adhesive. But there's a few different options. You cannot use a polyurethane-based adhesive. There's alternatives like melamine, urea, formaldehyde, or PRF, which don't degrade to the same extent at high temperature. So they, they kind of perform in terms of stickability terms very similarly to, to the char layer itself. But they don't prevent uh, char fall off. They just delay it or increase the, the temperature at which it happens or reduce the, the extent to which it happens. But that also means that it, by delaying it, you're also uh, creating a situation where what you expose, after all, is not like a fresh wood that's about to, to ignite, but you would expose something between a pyrolyzed wood to, to a char. Yeah, there's that component, and there's the time component, that if you, if you delay the, the char fall off, then... Hopefully, you're at a point in the fire where the heat fluxes to the surface are substantially reduced. Okay. So there's that. And, and then th there's been attention on modifying polyurethane-based adhesives. The perceived problem with the MUFs and, and the PRS is the formaldehyde component. You've got a, a nasty chemical which um, 
kind of selling that as a solution in buildings in which people spend an awful lot of time is can be quite challenging. So it also comes with complexities in the manufacturing process of the CLT itself. You often have to heat cure it. And so polyurethane is attractive for lots of reasons. It's, it's, a, it's a nicer material for human beings to be around. And also you can produce your CLT more quickly, which is important given the demand that you currently have on the product. And so for the US market, there was the modified polyurethane developed. It's called HBX. It's a proprietary product by Henkel. And what that has shown in, in some experiments that we've done and, and experiments by other is it reduces the susceptibility to, for that glue line integrity failure. It doesn't remove it altogether, but it definitely delays it. And it seems to have some interesting qualities in terms of what it does to the temperature profile through the wood, which we're quite keen to explore. And what about the encapsulation strategy? Because you've mentioned for the compliance with ADB, you would need a whole lot of encapsulating boards to, to cover the, the structure and prevent it completely from taking an active part in the fire. And mm. is there some middle ground where, I don't know, you can delay the moment where the timber becomes a part of the fire and that's sufficient? It's a similar sort of principle. And what the encapsulation or, or the lining is doing in that case is hopefully staying intact long enough to get you to the point in the fire where the, the contents of the room and the heat flux from the contents of the room is significantly reduced. Mm-hmm. Your strategy would be to impose that delay in terms of when the timber is involved. And ultimately, hopefully, by providing that encapsulation, mitigate the prospect of that glue line integrity failure as well, because you've insulated the surface until uh, ultimately the timber becomes exposed. And hopefully by the time the contents of the room and the structures potentially self-extinguished, that critical temperature of such a thing exists so the adhesive line hasn't been attained. So it's, it's another strategy in delaying the propagation of temperature through the wood. From, from this discussion, I really enjoyed the fact that there is some true engineering in that. And we often said that we need to engineer this timber for buildings. I didn't really understand to what extent are we really able to engineer this because timber is timber. Yeah. And from here, there's a lot of sound solutions that actually change these dynamics or the consequences of such a fire. Now, let's, let's forget Danny the scientist. Let's talk with Danny the consultant. <laughs> and how do, you, how do you sell that to an architect who would like to have an exposed wood surface because it's beautiful? Is it even possible to, to maintain aesthetics of a wood and create it into something safe? I would argue it is, provided you work within a pretty tight envelope. So we as OFR, particularly dealing with taller buildings, we, we have a series of, of ground rules or, or kind of an envelope that we're comfortable working within where we feel like the, the kind of the auto-extinction problem is, is simplified to the most simple version you can get in a building, which mm-hmm. is a single surface, typically a ceiling. And what I'm a great believer in, I, I feel like when, when we talk about it, we're going to build the world's tallest timber building, it's going to be the biggest, the largest, mm-hmm. it's going to have the most volume. They're, they're kind of vanity projects. They're not necessarily projects that are, are good engineering. Um, and the good engineering comes from using different materials where they work best. So we are very supportive of hybrid structures, whereby you use things like steel for your vertical load paths. If you want long spans, you use steel beams. And actually, you make use of the CLT where you might have a concrete slab. So a lot of our buildings will be a mixture of materials. So it might be a steel frame with a CLT floor, maybe even a concrete core. And then what we've got is, uh, is an inert combustible frame that can demonstrably survive the full duration of fire. It's not contributing as a source of fuel. And you've got a single surface where, in most cases, as we've evidenced through our large-scale testing, even if you have a glue line integrity failure, you can have that auto-extinction outcome. And, and that's kind of where we stay. That, that's, mm-hmm. that's, we identify where the big uncertainties exist. And, and as consultants, we, we don't go there until somebody is has generated that knowledge and has helped solve that problem. What we do separately to that is is we work hand in hand with a lot of academic and research institutions to try and understand things that might open up more opportunities in in the consultancy part of the business. So I know you've had Colleen Wade on who mm-hmm. who's spoken about our collaboration on B-Risk and how we've yeah. started to build a, a zone model where 
that combustion of the enclosure is a source term in enclosure energy balance. And we can start to use that and understand that in terms of how it might enable us to understand enclosure fire dynamics and also the external flaming part of of the mm. problem. So that's one sort of investment in time that we've made. Outside of that, we've currently refunded two PhDs. We've got one at the University of Edinburgh, a really bright and nice student, Antonella Colic, who is looking at the adhesive behaviour specifically uh, and actually wanting to understand the degradation of the adhesives that we commonly use in CLT. So she's been supervised by Luke and is, is with us at the moment having a placement. And we've also got a student at uh, the University of Sheffield who's kind of looking at it from a more um, structural mechanics perspective rather than the sort of fire dynamics perspective. So more in terms of how can we model the structural response of CLT in, in hybridized systems. And in particular with a view to almost like how you might incorporate that into a tool like Vulcan potentially as an additional functionality. So we accept we don't, we don't have all the answers to build all the buildings that every architect could possibly want, but we're quite robust in our positions in terms of where we think they should go and where we'll support them in going. I think that's an important part of why, why we kind of get the projects that we do is we're very transparent and honest up front about what, what you're drawing and, and what you're selling. I think here you show the pathways, you know, if you want a net negative carbon building with the whole structure made of engineered timber elements, there's a way to encapsulate them and make sure they do not uh, participate in the fire as a system. If you want the aesthetics, you can uh, settle on the exposed ceiling. And with a single surface and the knowledge we have, it's uh, possible to, to create this as a safe solution. If you want a combination of both, maybe there are ways to compensate for the loss of safety due to the due to these choices by altering, I don't know, the whole building strategy. There are tools that, that we have. So there truly is an engineer's way, you know, to create a safe building. You, ju you just have to follow that and not fall into the equivalency of fire resistance solves the issue and we don't care anymore because the number behind my letter is, as the law says, it has to be. So, so that's yeah. truly promising because uh, that's what engineering should be. Yeah, yeah. You you have a huge amount of architectural parameters that that you can play with that kind of drive that extinction outcome. You want huge openings. You want to maximize your radiative and convective losses from your enclosure, but you have to balance that against the the kind of the exposure hazard, the space separation hazard that mm. that might impose on on your neighbour. And the benefit of a big ventilation area is also your external flaming is significantly reduced because you're unlikely to have a ventilation control fire or it's, it can be substantially less ventilation controlled so that that's one parameter that is within the control of the design team you have the amount of combustible surface areas and their proximity to one another is another important parameter that that you can control or if you if you don't want to have or if you're concerned about that extinction outcome you might fully encapsulate some walls and prevent them mm -hmm. from becoming involved and and strategically exposed parts or some of other surfaces, depending upon how close they are together. So we're definitely getting a handle on the things that drive the problems, but I can't say that we're all the way there. And I think there is a duty on those that want to use the materials and those selling the materials to, to make a pretty big investment in, in research. And fair play and, and credit where it's due to, to the CLT suppliers. They've, they've made that first step and they're allowing us to start to develop this envelope that we can work within. But I think if people genuinely want to expand that envelope, then the investment needs to be made on on far more research than, than is currently being undertaken. And I think it's it's really worth investing because the engineered timber is just the tip of the iceberg. We're entering uh, a promising world of engineered bamboo products. There's engineered hemp products that can um, be used as uh, structural elements maybe in the future. This race for sustainability and, and finding new materials for our buildings is really accelerating. And uh, it seems that all the new materials have the same, say, flammability issues. It's like mm. when, when you discover a magical material that solves all of your problems, it's suddenly, it's e e either killing uh, you biologically or, or burns. For, for some reason, we, we're not having great luck in, in there. But uh, it's great that people like you are, are finding solutions and hopefully... What we learn now about engineered timber and because, you know, this compartment fire dynamics uh, discussions, 
these opening factors and this participation within the fire and at what stage of the fire the material participates. It's it's not just engineered timber. It's absolutely universal for any material you would have in a building. And uh, I think these fundamental discussions are maybe that we, we should have started at that point before we, we started running. As you said, we've uh, run before we walked, but I'm, I'm happy that we can now contribute to this fundamental knowledge and with every experiment, with every PhD, with every paper, we know a bit better and we gain confidence in how to deliver safety in, in such buildings. Yeah, sustainability absolutely can't be at the expense of, of safety. And this is the common argument that's made that, that fire engineers are kind of becoming an obstacle to this sort of sustainable utopia. But a disaster because we got a design wrong uh, and ultimately the sort of the legislative landscape being what it is, probably a ban on that material as a consequence yes. of such a disaster, that's not sustainable. So if you want to use these materials and for them to have some kind of longevity, then you've got to understand what you understand. You've got to understand what you don't understand, most importantly, and you've got to start to fill those knowledge gaps with research. And if you're not willing to do with that, then you've got to operate within that quite strict bubble of, of what we currently understand, which might mean lots of plasterboard or it might mean quite severe limitations on how much you can have exposed. Actually, a lot of plasterboard is not a bad outcome because that leads to safety. I'm more worried about forgetting about the issues because uh, the test said it's okay. If you judge the, the fish by its ability to climb a tree, it's not a really good climber, right? And yeah. I have a feeling we're using a fire resistance test to test wood engineered products and maybe not the best measure to actually quantify the complexity of the fire behavior of that. Okay, man, for some uh, parting words, where are you heading now with your research on engineered wood? Because I know it's not finished and I know there are exciting things on the horizon. <laughs> yeah, so this, this Structural Timber Association project that I mentioned has been running for a good 18 months at least. So we started out with this compliance roadmap trying to give people good information about what evidence they need, when and why. And working with ITB, we've just completed a program of what was four large-scale kind of office-type compartments was what we're aiming for, looking at extinction and the relationship with the blue line integrity failure and actually getting some really good data in terms of heat fluxes to different surfaces, heat fluxes to the floor in, in advance of the fire and starting to understand how fires might spread through large compartments without necessarily having to undertake absolutely massive compartment tests. We've got really good data in terms of heat fluxes that will allow us to make some estimates of what spread rates are likely to be through mm -hmm. compartments. And also to do that with different adhesive types because it, I think it's all well and good sort of advocating particular types of adhesive, but if they're not commercially available or the supply rate is, is fairly limited at this point in time, then we perhaps have to look at, at different ways of approaching the problem with Lemaire thickness and perhaps not so heat-resistant mm. adhesives. So that's allowed us to sort of look at that, the, those different options to, to tackling that problem. And then the so-named or the in-effect ban has, has done in England for residential buildings is pretty much killed a, a market where you can build residential buildings out of mass timber or anything combustible, frankly. And that's quite a reasonable position. I mean, there's, there's a huge lack of trust in people generally to use combustible materials in, in buildings where, where people live and sleep. But as I said at the beginning, I think the uh, timber in the residential space is potentially quite important because it's where the significant amount of building stock resides. So if you really want to use a material to impact embodied carbon, that's where you get the most bang for your buck. Uh, so we want to do some experiments. Uh, and again, they're going to be with, with ITB. We've got nine enclosure experiments planned where we're, we're actually going to start to to try and, and, and understand and, and predict, firstly, the, the sort of the plasterboard failure part of the problem, because we talk about encapsulation, just riding out the fire and it will be there at the end and the timber will be unaffected underneath. But but kind of understanding plasterboard failure is, is sort of the fire safety engineering holy grail in many respects. It's, it's not a problem that's, that's well understood. I tried it a bit with my PhD and it's a real minefield uh, in terms of understanding how that degrades and how it detaches. So we need some data in that respect. And also we need to understand if allowing that plasterboard to fail when you've got pretty much every surface in your enclosure formed of a combustible material, whether that's even a realistic proposition mm -hmm. or whether we, we accept that actually if you're going to have multiple 
combustible surfaces, then the solution is always going to converge on something with an awful lot of encapsulated surface area. Or can we optimize that to some extent, whereby actually some of that plasterboard is failing during the fire, we're exposing some of the wood, but it's not becoming exposed too early so as to have this sort of uh, never-ending cyclical char fall off reignition mm. and, and ultimately the structure having nothing left at the end. Down, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So that's where we're going with that. And there'll be some publications in the pipeline, I'm sure, when uh, all is said and done. And I'm more than excited to burn these uh, nine buildings for you. Yeah. I'm a little less excited about unpacking 30 tons of CLT you have kindly shipped to my <laughs> laboratory. <laughs> But yeah, first let's learn the logistics of working with CLT. Uh, then let's learn how to build the buildings with CLT. And then we're going to learn how to safely uh, burn them in a way that does not lead to se severe structural failure. And yeah. uh, I really hope to to see how it goes. And I think we'll come back to this uh, topic sometime later when the, all the data is processed, when the conclusions are formed and even a clearer pathway is available. And for now, if an engineer seeks guidance where, where they should look for it, what would you recommend? So Cross UK has, has published some really good articles on from, from a sort of legislative and guidance standpoint on, on where timber sits in that sort of definition of a common building situation. So I definitely recommend the cross reports. There is a summary article that we wrote in, in SFP Europe on the compliance roadmap, if you don't want to read a fairly lengthy report <laughs> on the STA website. But there's no, there's no specific sort of design guidance or, or tools available at the moment. We're in that period where the current Eurocodes don't cover such things. The future Eurocodes might cover them in, to, to some extent. But really, it's going back to what we understood about timber many decades ago. You've got sort of the Rashbash firepoint mm. theory. You've got the various stuff in Drysdale that is there and we seemingly ignored for an awful long time about the fundamentals yeah. of how timber burns. It, it is. And, and it is a, yeah. and, but we just seem to either ignore its existence or just forgot it was there and forgot the lessons and, and went for the yeah. convenience of, of charring rates and fire resistance periods. So I definitely... Definitely advocate those and the, the theses and the publications of the few people I, I mentioned. I, I will link all of them in the show notes so um, people know where to go from that. And for the final thing, congratulations on the Structural Fire Engineering Handbook that's Thank about you. to reach the, the surface. Man, that's, uh, that's such a huge project and maybe even a separate podcast episode. Uh, oh, so. yeah, you could, uh, you could get Kevin and I to give you the... The, the lowdown on, on what's how to write the handbook <laughs> how, how to write well maybe how not to write a handbook would be <laughs> we we could give advice on all the mistakes we made um, bad practices in handbook writing that's, that's yeah, that would be a popular episode <laughs> exactly yeah it's it's something we embarked on i think we officially started about two months before the, the grenfell tower fire wow. uh, and then you combine the outcomes of that for, for fire engineers around the world with COVID mixed in there as well. And yeah, it's been a long time coming. Well, I'm glad it's reaching us and I cannot wait uh, to get my, my hands on that. So congratulations yeah. once again. And thank you so much for joining Fire Science Show. And it was a pleasure to have you here, Danny. Cheers, man. No problem. Thanks for having me. Cheers. This talk was really rejuvenating for me. Not because the issues are solved or I feel much safer about timber buildings today, but uh, Danny showed me clear pathways on how to solve engineering problems. And, you know, every time you hear that we you need to hire competent fire engineers to design timber structures, or that you should look holistically at timber buildings and fire and stuff like that. But it's really difficult to understand what people mean with that. Where should we go? What kind of holistic approach should we actually implement when there is the flammability issue, which is obvious, and you somehow have to deal with that. And I'm really happy Dennis showed this approaches with encapsulation, partial encapsulation, some technical solutions to prevent uh, glue line failure, some aspects of compartment fire dynamics that can be taken into account. To, to really understand the scale of a problem you are creating by making a building a compartment, a part of a building uh, from engineered timber. And once you understand the risks, you can compensate for them or find solutions or maybe just agree to the risk that you have and, and 
live well with your building. That's, uh, that's engineering, and that's why I became one of engineers, actually. So I'm really happy we had this talk, and uh, Danny also mentioned a lot of resources that uh, are there for you. We certainly do not have all the problems worked out. We certainly need more knowledge. We need more fundamental research. We need more applied research. We need more case studies to understand the impact this structural timber can have on the build industry. But there are resources. There are resources already. All the PhDs mentioned, all, all the papers mentioned are linked. In the show notes, there are some great videos for you to watch. And I hope it becomes a nice resource hub for people looking for some safe timber advice. And uh, yeah, also look forward to the... Uh, handbook on structural fire engineering. Danny and Kevin Lamalva are the editors of this uh, handbook. It's going to be live soon-ish. And it's and this one, I, I've been told, is quite comprehensive. So I cannot wait to have my, my copy and dig into that. And so that's it for the, today's episode. I hope you enjoyed our little chat about timber and fire. And yeah, as usual, thank you very much for listening. Make sure to share the knowledge about the podcast with your colleagues. And as usual, see you next Wednesday. Cheers. This was the Fire Science Show. Thank you for listening and see you soon.